I suppose one of my favorite hymns of all time is It Is Well With My Soul. And as I listen to Bill singing a few minutes ago, to be able to say that, it is well with my soul. I hope you can say that. It is well with my soul. No matter what else is going on, it is well with my soul. What a tremendous thought. Well, today we're going to continue our study from 1 John. And as we do, you recall that John said his purpose for writing this letter was that the reader's joy might be complete and that they may not sin. And yet last time, as we were looking at this letter, John said, but there are some who are trying to cover their sin. And the way we try to cover our sin, he said, was by lying about it. First of all, we lie to other people about our sin if we say we have no sin. So we try to convince other people that we are not sinners, that we don't have the problems that they do. And he said, and then we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves about our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so sometimes we try to cover our sin by convincing ourselves that our sin is not really sin. He said, ultimately, we lie to God and we make him a liar. So last week as we were looking, John said that we are not to cover our sin by lying about it. But he said, instead, we are to confess our sin. And the word confess means to say the same thing. It means to agree with God. So I don't try to lie about my sin. I don't try to cover my sin. But instead, I agree with God that this is sin. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise. I'm not trying to deceive myself. And I'm not saying that God is a liar when he says that we sin. So John tells us that we do not cover our sin. We confess our sin. And then today, he presents Jesus as the conqueror. Of our sin. Take your Bibles, look at 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. As we look at these verses, there are three focuses for you this morning. First of all, we focus on John, then Jesus, and then the believer. Now let's look at John in verse number 1 where he says, My little children. What an incredibly tender greeting as he is writing. He addresses his reader as my little children. Lloyd Ogilvy wrote, John's intent is probably not so much to imply the young age of his audience, but rather to express affection. Jesus had used that same greeting in John chapter 13, verse 33, when he said, Little children, 
I am with you for a little while longer. Now understand at the time of the writing, John was old. This letter was written in around 100 A.D. So he was old at the time. In fact, he might have been the last person alive who had actually walked with the physical Jesus on earth. John is writing then from a position of age and from a position of experience. The letter that he writes is a general letter. In other words, it is a letter that is to be circulated among all the churches. Ogilvy said, unlike the letters of Paul and the book of Revelation, this letter from John does not identify any particular church or city location. So, understand, as he is writing this letter, John is older. He has experience that others do not. And he writes this general letter that is to be circulated among all the churches. It has something to say to us. It is not directed towards a particular church, but in general. One of the things that impresses me about his letter is very authoritative. John is old, but he has not lost his passion for the truth. He is still committed to the truth. And he does not equivocate when he shares the truth with his audience. So John then is writing this general letter. He is authoritative in his writing, and yet it is fatherly in tone. There is a sense in which it is a father who is addressing his children in the faith. There is a tenderness that comes with it. As I thought through that, I thought, I wonder what the letter would have been had it been written by a legalist. I would imagine that had a legalist written this letter about their sin, that he would have been very condemning towards them for their sin. But as I read John's letter, it is a tender letter of love that is written from this disciple of Christ. He tells us his objective there in verse 1. My little children... I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. He said, I'm writing this to you, why? That you may not sin. Habitually, as a way of life, that you may not sin. But you see, sin is universal. In chapter 1, verse number 8, he said, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is a problem we all have to deal with. Paul said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The psalmist said there is none righteous, no, not one. So we know the problem that we all have to deal with sin, do we not? I mean, I know there are two or three of you out there who do not, but the rest of us do. We all, well, here's the question then. If the Bible repeatedly tells us that we all have this same problem, then why worry about it, right? I mean, if we, if, if we can't do anything about it and we are all sinners anyway, what difference does it make? Why should I worry about it? Westcott gives a couple of reasons. He said, first of all, that if you know God, if you really know God, then you want to be obedient to God. I would agree with that, would you? If you really know God, now I'm not saying, and please understand this, when we are talking about a relationship to the Lord, we're not talking about being Baptist. 
We're not talking about being Methodist or anything else, but knowing God. And he says, if you really know God, then you want to be obedient to God. And if you are in union with Christ, he said, then you want to be an imitator of Christ. Here John says, I'm writing that you may not sin, but if you do, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And so he introduces Jesus into the equation. You see, the problem we have is that Christianity is an ethical religion, and we are ethical failures, and that's the reason that God sent a Messiah. John uses two significant words here as he talks about Jesus. Now, he is focusing the attention. He says, you know, we all have sinned. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. If you sin, he says, then I want you to focus on Jesus. And he gives two, he uses two words to describe Jesus at this point. First, he's an advocate. Verse number one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. The Greek word is parakletos. And uh, it is oftentimes or sometimes used in the Bible to mean to comfort. The word that is used in advocate means to comfort. For instance, when Jesus is speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he said, I am sending a what? I'm sending the comforter to you. I'm sending the paraclete to you. So oftentimes, the word speaks of comfort. Now, let me give you some examples of how it was used in that context. For instance, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they knew that wasn't going to stand with their father, and so they took an animal's blood and put it on his robe, took that back to the father, and said to the father, A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, that's what they said to their father. Even though they had sold him into slavery, they said, Well, where's Joseph? Well, there was a wild beast attacked him and killed him. And then the Bible says in Genesis 37, 35, Then all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. So, there is a case where the word or a similar word is being used. It means to comfort, to surround, to comfort. So, the sons and the daughters surrounded Jacob to comfort him. The Bible says that when Isaiah wrote, that he wrote to comfort the people. In Isaiah 61, verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So again, we see what it means to comfort those who are mourning. Jesus said that he would comfort his followers in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So when we look at this word advocate, Sometimes it is used in the Bible to mean to comfort. Vine says paraclesis means a calling to one's side. Now that is the common usage of the word. That is the way that it is used most often. A calling to one's side. Now, that would be passive in form then because it literally means to call to one's side. If I called you to my side, that's a passive thing. You just come up here and stand. It is passive. So, to call to one side, advocate, to call to, to call to one side, it would be passive. So, it is passive in form, but it was active in practice. 
Barclay said, although passive in form, it has an active sense. And it comes to mean a helper, a supporter, and above all, a witness in someone's favor, an advocate in someone's defense. Okay? So here's what the word means most often. It means to call someone to your side who is going to be a defender with you. To call to someone's side someone who is going to be there with me, who is going to be a witness for me, who is going to help me. Now, Philo tells about Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. They sold him into slavery. You know the story. Later, he was before them and he offered forgiveness to them. He said, I offer you an amnesty for all that you did to me. You need no other parakletos. You need no other witness. So Joseph then said, you need no one to stand by your side but me. I am your witness. I am your defender. I am on your side. Barclay said the Jews especially adopted the word and used it in this sense of advocate. Someone to plead one's cause. They used it as the opposite of the word accuser. And so the early Christians then adopted this definition into their language. That what is an advocate? It is someone who is called to your side to be a defender. An advocate is someone who is called to your side to stand there with you. In fact, there is an early Christian definition of the word that defines it as one who lends his presence to his friends. So, an advocate then is someone who lends his presence to his friends. He is someone who is called to my side to be a defender, to be an intercessor. Does that not sound like Jesus? Because the Bible says that Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. People would ask, what is Jesus doing? I mean, he has ascended into heaven. What's he doing today? You know what he's doing? He is there interceding for you. He is before the Father interceding for you and interceding for me. He is our advocate. He intercedes. He intercedes for our salvation. In Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. So, Jesus then is our advocate. It means that He has been called to our side in an active sense in that He is interceding for us. He is a witness for us. He is a defender for us. He is our advocate. And then he mentions Jesus as the propitiation in verse number 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So, as an advocate then, he comes to our aid. As our propitiation, he sacrifices for us. Okay? So, as John now is presenting Jesus to us, if you have sinned, we have what? We have an advocate, someone who comes to our aid, and he is our propitiation who makes sacrifice for us. The aim of all religions, whatever that religion is, is that there might be fellowship between God and man. 
there are ten. That's what religion does. It tries to make God and man reconciled. Problem is, is that we have a problem of sin, an issue with sin, and sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So religion then tries to bring man and God together. Sin separates man and God. How do we come together? Through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. See, that was the Jewish sacrificial system. They had a sacrificial system And as sacrifices were offered, they were offered for the sin of man that man and God might come together. For instance, there there were the uh, sin offerings. The sin offerings were made in the temple day and night for the sins of man. There were the trespass offerings. Trespass offerings were for sins of specific kind, particular sins that were committed And then there was the Day of Atonement where sacrifices were made for all sins, whether known or unknown. But there was this sacrificial system that a sacrifice was made. Why? Because man and God were separated because of sin, so it was to bring them together. It was to restore fellowship. So out of that Jewish background came the Christian's thinking and understanding. The verb for propitiation has three Meanings, man, for instance, can be the subject. Barclay said when it is used with a man as the subject, it means to placate or to pacify someone who has been injured or offended, and especially to placate a God. All right, now then, if God is the subject, and God can be the subject, if He is the subject, it means forgiveness. That God has provided a sacrifice... And as he has provided a sacrifice, then man can be restored to him. Or the action can be the subject. Barclay said the verb often means to perform some deed by which the taint of guilt is removed. C.H. Dodd said, man sins and is tainted with, with sin. He needs something to disinfect him from taint and enable him to have fellowship with God. In that sense, it means not to propitiate, but to expiate. Not so much to pacify God. Not so much to pacify God. That's not what it is. Not so much to pacify God as to disinfect man from the taint of sin and thereby fit him again to enter into fellowship with God. All right, so then John says that that uh, we are to deal with our sin, that we all have sinned. We have to deal with our sin. He presents Jesus, and he says that Jesus now is our advocate who comes to our side. He comes to our aid. He is our propitiation. He makes sacrifice so that we can be right with God. Now then, his focus is on the believer in verse number 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Ladies and gentlemen, a believer is someone who knows God. A Christian is someone who knows Christ. It is not to know about him, but someone who knows him. But how does finite man know infinite God? Now, see, the Greeks believed that it was important to know God. That was a part of it. They believed that it was important to to know God. But how? 
Well, in the 6th and the 5th centuries before Christ, the Greeks believed the way to know God was intellectual. That we know God by argument. We know God by debate. We know God by reason. That was the way they thought that one knew God. That we know God intellectually. T.R. Glover describes this time. He said, everything must be examined. All the world is the proper study of man. There is no question which it is wrong for man to ask. Nature, in the long run, must stand and deliver. God, too, must explain himself, or did he not make man so? That was the attitude of the Greek at this time, that one knows God through intellectual pursuit. Now, what is the result of that? That if I know God through my intellect, what is the result? Well, there's intellectual satisfaction because there always is. When I have an intellectual pursuit, there is a satisfaction that comes as a result of it, but there was no moral obligation. There was the, you see, the Greeks were curious intellectually, but they were corrupt morally. Now, some of you have studied Greek mythology, and you know about that, and, and they were incredibly corrupt people. But at this time period, they believed that one came to know God through intellectual pursuit. There are still those today who have that belief, that one knows God intellectually, and the result is still the same. There is intellectual satisfaction, but there is no sense of moral obligation. There are those who talk about God, and they might be able to be very interesting in their discussion, but oftentimes it ends up without any moral obligation in their lives. Nothing to say that they really know God. By the time of the New Testament, the Greeks had switched. They no longer believed that one knew God intellectually. They believed that one knew God emotionally. So they moved from the intellect to the emotion. And that phenomenon was evidenced in the mystery religions and the passion plays. Passion plays were interesting because it appealed to that. It appealed to this emotional understanding that one knows God through the emotion. And that's what the passion plays appealed to. Barclay said of the passion plays, they were all founded on the story of some God who lived and suffered terribly and died a cruel death and rose again. Everything, what they, everything was designed to heighten the emotional atmosphere. Now, this was the passion plays back then. There was cunning lighting, sensuous music, perfumed incense, a marvelous liturgy. At the time of the New Testament, the Greek believed that one knew God through the emotion. So knowing God then was feeling God. And they would go to the passion plays and so forth, and their emotions would be stirred. And uh, you, I, they felt God. I, I, I know God because I feel God. I sense God. There, there is an emotional release that came to them. And so what it actually did was uh, to help them escape the realities of life. There are those today who seek God to know God emotionally. And the result is still pretty much the same. 
I, I know of people who can spend an hour or two hours or whatever it is in service very emotionally stirred, but when they leave the service and walk out the door and go back to work or go back home or get in the car to drive home, there's not really a difference in their life. That's the way it was with the Greeks. There was, in the 6th and 5th centuries, they believed that you knew God intellectually. By the time of the New Testament, they believed that you knew God emotionally. The believers adopted more of a Jewish understanding of knowing God. That it did not, to know God does not come from the intellect or from the emotion, but we know God by revelation. God reveals Himself, and the result is very different. If God reveals Himself to us, then He reveals what it means to be a follower of Christ, and it means in part obedience. Look at verse number 3 again. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. We know Him what? If I feel Him? Nope. If I figured things out? Nope. We know Him if we keep His commandments. A.E. Brooks said, John can conceive of no real knowledge of God which does not issue in obedience. C.H. Dodd said, To know God is to experience His love in Christ and to return that love in obedience. Folks, we can talk about knowing God We can talk about experiences that we have had with God. But the Bible says the proof of the pudding, so to speak, is that we are obedient to God. If I know God, then the Bible says, then I want to be obedient. Does that mean that I'm perfect? Absolutely not. But boy, that's my desire. I want to be obedient to the Lord. I want to keep His commandments. That's what it means, he says, to, to know God. That I keep His commandments. And secondly, that I want to be like Him. Look at verse number 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. One commentator said the only way which we can show that we know God is by obedience to him. And the only way we can show that we have union with Christ is by imitation of him. Would you agree with that? That, that's the reason there is so much confusion when people look at the church today and they say, well, those people are Christians, but they're not any different than I am. No. John says if we know Him, we are obedient to Him. And the only way that people know that we are being obedient to Him is if we are like Him. That we are imitators of Him. So, let me conclude. John is saying in this little letter to people that he loved, my dear children, my little children, that we are sinners. We have, a, we have a sin issue. And we can try to lie to others that we are not sinners. We can deceive ourselves into believing that we don't have a sin issue. We can try to blame God, make Him a liar. But John says that we still are all sinners. We have to deal with sin. That was the reason that Jesus came. That's what John says. We have this sin problem, so God, knowing that we have this sin problem, sent the Messiah, sent His Son. What? He came as an advocate. He has been called to our side to defend me, to intercede for me. So, Jesus then is not passive in His relationship to me. He is called to my side to defend me. 
He intercedes for me. He makes intercession for our salvation. He is the propitiation for us. He is the sacrifice that enables us to be right with God. And those who put their faith in Him, the Bible says, who know Him, are what? Obedient to Him. If you know Jesus Christ, your desire is to be obedient to His commands, to do what He says. And if you are obedient to His commands, then you are going to be an imitator of Him. You're going to be like Him. So John says that God has sent us an advocate of propitiation to make intercession for us and to provide the sacrifice by which we can be right with God. Are you right with Him? Do you know Him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Him? Oftentimes we want to answer that question by saying, well, I've been baptized. Or I'm a member of a particular religious denomination. No, that's not the question at all. I really don't believe the Lord is that impressed with our brands. I think He is only impressed with our relationship to Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? Our gracious Father, I pray that You might allow us to see ourselves as You see us and that we might be honest in answering the question. Lord, for those who do not know You, I pray today that they might commit their lives to You. Fathers, we extend this invitation. I pray for the Holy Spirit to draw people to Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir will sing a hymn of invitation, an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. If you're here without Christ today, He offers Himself as your advocate, as your propitiation, if you're willing to receive Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as we stand and the choir sings, You come, I'll greet you should do it.